It is a good day, and it is a good day to begin a brand new sermon series on the end times. You know, I think perhaps today, after this week we've gone through, about half of our country believes that the world has come to an end, and the other half believes maybe that the second coming has come. But no matter where you fall in that spectrum, we know for sure one thing, that every single one of our country's leaders stands in need of our prayers, and that we are called to pray for all of the leaders of our country. And we are called to witness to our Christian faith in everything we say and in everything we do. And so today, as I said, we are beginning a three-week series on eschatology, which is a big old word that means end times. And so throughout history, when times have been tough, when things have looked gloomy, people have started asking the question, is this the end time? Is this the end of the world? Maybe you have found yourself asking that question at some time in your life or other. Well, the disciples in today's lesson were wondering the, that question too. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus and his disciples are gathered at the temple in Jerusalem. This is Herod's temple, and it was one of the most magnificent buildings in the entire world at that time. It had been rebuilt in the year 516 B.C. after the Jewish people had returned from their exile in Babylon. And then in the first century B.C., Herod tore down the temple and he rebuilt it bigger and better than ever, greatly expanding the area around the temple. That whole building project took years and years to complete. And in verse 1... The disciples are there with Jesus, and they are admiring this temple. And then Jesus says something that shocks them. He says, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, this temple is the very center of religious and political life. It was the heart of the city. For it to be thrown down would be cataclysmic. And so the disciples walked out of the city and up the hill to the Mount of Olives, which was one of Jesus' favorite places to hang out. And when they're away from the crowd, they ask Jesus privately, tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus names off some things that they should look for. Deception, wars, rumors of wars, famines and earthquakes. There would be disciples who would be arrested, abused, hated and put to death. There would be apostasy and false prophets. And yet the gospel would be preached to all the nations. And then the end would come. In verses 15 to 25, Jesus specifically refers to the immediate future. He's talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and of Jerusalem itself in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus besieged the city. He broke through the city's walls. He massacred, killed much of the population of Jerusalem and destroyed the city, including the temple. Verse 15, so when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. And how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in the winter or on the Sabbath. And then in verses 26 and following, Jesus talks about his second coming. And what he says is that it will be unmistakable. Picking up again in verse 30, he says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. In verse 34, Jesus answers their first question of when the temple will be, restored, will be destroyed. He says, truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. In other words, he's saying it's going to happen soon, and it did. Forty years later, the Romans destroyed it. But then he answers their second question of when he will return. And he says this, But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. What he's saying is that life will go on as usual, much like it did in the days of Noah. People attending to their everyday activities, eating and drinking, giving and being taken in, married, in marriage, working in the fields, and then it will come. The only thing is you don't know when. We don't know when, but that has never stopped us from trying, has it? Despite Jesus' warning, every single generation has had people who have tried to guess when the end would come. Way back in the second century A.D., there was this guy named Montanus who said that he said the end was coming. And he developed this large following of people around him, and they stopped caring for their flocks, and they stopped raising crops. And then when the end didn't happen... This movement became a church that actually lasted in some remnant or another up until about the ninth century. In the year 999, a large number of people thought that when the new millennium came in, that that's when the end would come. And so lots of people made a pilgrimage to Rome to celebrate what they thought would be their last mass on New Year's Eve with Pope Sylvester II. People sold off everything they owned. They quit working. They confessed their most deepest, darkest, horrible sins and secrets because they were convinced that this would be the end and they needed to get that out. So you might imagine their horror on New Year's Day when they woke up and the end hadn't come and they discovered that they were going to have to spend some more time with these people that they had just confessed their deepest, darkest sins to. 
In the 1840s, a man named William Miller developed a huge following, and he insisted that the end of the world was near, and again, there was embarrassment and disillusionment. And then when the end didn't appear, this group of people eventually formed what is known today as the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Today, there are lots of people who devote themselves to making a living by talking at conferences, writing and publishing books, and appearing on TV, talking about current events that they believe signal the end of the world. But here's the truth. Everyone who has ever tried to predict the end of the world has been wrong. (laughs) There is a 100% failure rate. The end is coming. Don't get me wrong. We just don't know when. Jesus himself was very clear on that. It will be a surprise. One area of eschatology that has generated different points of views over the years is the millennial. This refers to the 1,000-year reign of Christ that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 20. But we also see glimpses of the Old Testament prophets. Think about Isaiah 11, where he says there will be a shoot that comes out of the stump of Jesse, referring to King David. And this shoot will usher in an age where the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the leopard will live with the goat and the calf and the lion and a little child will lead them. For all the earth will be filled with the knowledge and the glory of the Lord. Or the prophet Micah in chapter 4, who says they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. You see, for the first 350 years or so, the dominant view was that Christ would return and then we would have the 1,000-year reign of Christ. This is called pre-millennialism. But once Christianity became legal throughout the Roman Empire and Christians were no longer being put to death in the Colosseum, people then began to think, you know, things seem pretty good right now. It feels like maybe Christianity has won the hearts of everyone. Maybe there is no literal millennial. Maybe what the Bible means is that Christ would rule in the human heart and in those who have died and now reign in heaven. And this became known as amillennialism. And this was the dominant view up until about the 1600s. People then began to think about Jesus' words in Matthew 24, verse 14, where it says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world, and then the end will come. And they began to speculate, maybe the thousand years comes first, and then Christ returns. And this became known as post-millennialism. The millennial would be ushered in as the gospel spread throughout the entire world. Think about this period of history where ships are setting sail for lands yet unknown and preaching the gospel to people that had never, we didn't even know existed before on new continents. The idea here was that life would get better and better and then Christ would return. And it was this view 
that most Christians ascribe to when John and Charles Wesley began the Methodist revival. In fact, it was this view that inspired the first and second great awakenings and that led to much of the social reform that happened in the 19th century. Women's suffrage, child labor laws, abolition, prison reform, and the temperance movement all were driven almost entirely by church women. The thought was that the sooner we get the gospel preached and improve the world, the sooner Jesus would return. Now, Wesley himself never had a lot to say about the end times. At times in some of, um, in some of his writings, it seems like he was embracing premillennialism, but at other times, postmillennialism. And so Methodism has never really taken a very definitive position. You can find Methodists that might ascribe to any one of these three views. You can believe any one of these three views and still be a good Methodist. Well, in the early 1800s, another view became popular. There was an Anglican priest by the name of John Darby who lived in Ireland, and he became so disenchanted with the established church that he resigned, and then he helped form a new church called the Plymouth Brethren. He believed that the church and the world would get worse and worse until Christ returned. He looked at the Bible, and he came up with seven dispensations. Dispensations are periods of history in which he saw God working in different ways. And when he looked at Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 to 41, where there are two men or two women who, women who are working side by side, and suddenly one of them is gone, or when he looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, where Paul says that we will be caught up together with them in the clouds, he surmised that instead of one second coming, there must be two. The first one he called the rapture. This would be a sort of secret return. Jesus would not come to earth, but only partway to earth and snatch away all the Christians and take them back to heaven. And then this would be followed by a period of seven years of great tribulation. And then he would come again with all the saints this time, followed by the thousand-year reign of Christ. And this new idea became known as dispensational premillennialism. If nothing else, you're going to have a whole lot of new words to go home with today, right? In 1909, a study Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible was published and popularized Darby's views. One of the most popular books of the 1970s was The Late Great Planet Earth, written by Hal Lindsey. Lindsey's book catapulted dispensationalism into the jargon of American Christianity. And it attempted to identify modern events with the fulfillment of biblical prophecy to determine when Jesus was coming back. That book sold about 28 million copies. And then a little bit closer to our time in 1995, many of you will remember that 16 novels called the Left Behind series, were published. They became extremely popular throughout the United States. Now, I'm always skeptical when someone comes up with a new doctrine that they discovered in the Bible. 
But just because something is new doesn't mean it's wrong. It is possible that for the first 1,800 years, the church got it wrong. The classic view of premillennialism that Christ returns followed by a 1,000-year reign of Christ seems to fit with the teaching of Scripture. But where I disagree is that you can force human history into seven different dispensations. I don't see that in the Bible. And if you read the Scriptures about the second coming, it's clear that both Jesus and Paul speak of just one coming not a secret return, and then a public return. Again, attempts to look at current events and then fix a date for the return of Jesus have to this date always been wrong, 100% wrong. So what do we do with that? Do we just ignore the Bible's teaching about the end times? Do we treat it as though it's not really important to us? Of course not. The truth is, we are in the end times. We have been in the end times for 2,000 years. And the church has always looked for Christ's return, and that's how we should live each and every day. Jesus made that clear to us. In Matthew 24, 44, he said, So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. And then Jesus told a series of three parables, and we'll spend the next three weeks looking at each one of these individually. The ten virgins, the talents, and the sheep and the goats. You see, Jesus is driving home the idea that future expectation should lead us to preparation. So today we're going to take a look at the parable of the ten virgins and see what we can learn from that parable. Now Jesus sets this parable within the context of a first century Jewish wedding. You see, the bride and her bridesmaids would wait at the bride's parents' house for the groom. He had been away for some time preparing the house where they were going to live and getting it ready for his bride. And then when the groom came, they would start this procession. It almost always started at night, and they would go from the bride's house to the groom's house. This often started with a lot of noise making in the streets as the groom and his groomsmen came. They'd be blowing horns, and, and trumpets would be blaring. And then they'd pick up the bride and the bridesmaids and her family, and this procession would go with lamps through the town streets at night. And then when the groom arrived, they'd all go into the groom's house, the brides, and the whole party would begin. In this parable, the arrival of the groom is delayed for some reason. Maybe the bride's parents and the groom's parents were still trying to negotiate the bride price. I don't know. But because of this lateness, all the bridesmaids have fallen asleep at the bride's house. Finally, at midnight, an announcement is made that the groom is on his way. The trumpets are blasting. Five of the bridesmaids have come prepared by bringing some extra oil for their lamps. Jesus calls those bridesmaids wise. But the other five, they did not bring any extra oil for their lamps, and Jesus calls them foolish. 
So when the five go out to buy more oil, the groom arrives and the wedding party leaves and they go to the groom's house. They go inside and the unprepared bridesmaids, when they finally arrive, they find that the door is shut and locked. And Jesus ends with a warning. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Just put yourself for a moment in the position of one of those five bridesmaids who forgot their oil. What would that feel like to you? Have you ever had a day like that or a morning like that? These bridesmaids, maybe they were running late because they had overslept and it took longer than normal to do their hair and makeup. This was a wedding they were going to. They wanted to look their best, right? Or maybe they got out the door and into their car and they realized they'd left their car keys inside and they went inside and they couldn't find them. They weren't in the normal spot and so they searched around. And by the time they were halfway to the bride's house, it was only then that they realized that they were out of oil. They hadn't remembered to bring any extra. I've had mornings like that before. Maybe you have too. How do you rate yourself in being prepared? When you go to work or to school, are you the kind of person that has everything laid out? Your backpack is packed or your briefcase is ready with pens and pencils and a bottle of water or your lunch packed and ready to go? If you're going on vacation or a road trip, are you the type that packs some extra supplies? You know where your maps are. You've got some extra food and water, especially in the winter if you break down and need it. Do you have some emergency provisions in the trunk? Do you have games for the kids to play so they don't get bored? Or are you the kind of person who just wings it? <laughs> Off the cuff, wings it. Jesus warns against just winging it. What have you been putting off? Maybe it's starting an exercise routine or losing a few pounds that you've put on during COVID-19. I know I've put on probably about 10 pounds, I think. I've not gone back to my gym since it's reopened. I've done some exercise outdoors, but it's been summertime, and now the days are getting shorter, and soon they'll be getting colder, and I'm going to need my gym pretty soon. I just don't know if I'm quite ready to go back there yet. And so I'm paying for a membership that I'm not even using. Maybe you wanted to learn a new skill, a new language, or something that would help in your career these kinds of things might be little things, but they are important things. Jesus says, start today. Don't procrastinate. But you know, Jesus is talking about way more than just getting in shape or losing a few pounds or finding a way to um, improve ourselves for self-improvement. Jesus is advising us of the dangers of just winging it when it comes to our spiritual life. Jesus wants us to keep watch the time is near. There's a sense of urgency for us. Whenever Jesus talked about his second coming in the Gospels, it was always with the sense that he leaves us in charge while he is gone and we are to be about doing his work. We want to be doing his work so that when he returns, he finds us living our lives well. Jesus talks about being alert and about keeping awake. It's not that he worries that we're going to defy him. 
is that we might just drift into missing our one and only opportunity to do his important work while we are here on this earth. Because whoever you are and whatever you do, no matter how old you are or young you are, your life matters. You play an important role in this world. You see, Jesus has entrusted his house to us, his work to us. What you do matters. Don't sleep through it. You have this one and only life. You have this one and only chance to grow, to love God, and to pour out your one and only life in making a difference for the kingdom. You have been given people in your life, people you love. You have this one and only life. You have this time until the end of life to love them. Some of us are just drifting through our relationships. Some of us go through our life stirring up conflict. Some of us know that there is stuff that needs to be resolved. Apologies that need to be made. Forgiveness that needs to be asked for. Forgiveness that needs to be given. Do it now. You have this moment. Jesus is coming back. Don't let him find you asleep when he comes. Last week in the sermon, we talked about investing our lives into someone else. We talked about being a mentor or a coach to someone. We talked about investing our resources and to care for the under-resourced. You see, we want our living we want to be living a lifestyle that glorifies God and that shows people what Jesus is like so they can see Jesus living in us. And to do that, we can't be complacent. Now, Jesus isn't trying to make us feel guilty. What he is saying is that your life matters. This is your one and only chance to celebrate the goodness of God with exuberant joy and to speak the truth in love, and to face problems with unflinching courage. My friends, we don't get a second chance at this. And so I'm asking you now, are you living your life with a sense of urgency? Do you understand that you exist because you were created in the mind of God with a purpose in mind that he has just for you? Do you know that we need to pray and worship and serve and love and work and rest with every single fiber of our being until Jesus comes back. How is your devotional life? What are you putting off? What if you got up just a little bit earlier to spend time with God before your day begins? Maybe you've been putting off joining an in-depth Bible study class or a life group, don't delay. Stop procrastinating. Start today. You see, the five wise ones did something just a little bit more than the others. It wasn't huge, was it? They just brought a little more oil. Start doing now what you know you need to do, and then you'll be happy later. 
I remember during my freshman year at Indiana University, I was on the cross-country team, and we were expected to be at practice every single weekday afternoon at 3 p.m. But in addition to that afternoon team workout, my coach expected all of the long-distance runners to do a slow, easy morning workout of about three miles. Now, I was a freshman that year, and if you've ever been a freshman or you have a freshman now or recently, you know that freshmen are going through a lot of changes, trying to figure out how to be independent and get to class on time and balance so many things. That was me. And so I had just not figured out how to make the time, to carve out the time to do that morning workout on my own. I seemed to think that maybe I was the only one that had ever had that problem. And so I went to my coach and I told him, Coach Bell, I just don't have the time to do this morning workout. Is that okay? And he said to me this, Putman, I want you to keep a log, a written log for two weeks of how you spend every moment of your waking day. And I was literally about four days into that log when I realized how much time I was wasting and I never, ever missed a morning workout again. It's really about discipline, no matter what we do. And you know that the root word of discipline is disciple. So to be a disciple is to be a follower of something or someone. E.M. Gray wrote an essay entitled The Common Denominator of Success. And he spent his entire life looking for the one thing that all successful people share. And he found it wasn't hard work. It wasn't good luck. It wasn't being astute at human relations. It was putting first things first. The successful person has the habit of doing the things that other people don't like to do or don't want to do. They probably don't want to do them either. The difference is they do them. They have the discipline to do something even when they don't want to. My friend, the temptation always exists to focus on the wrong things or to put things off or to refuse to do the little things that will pay off big in the future. Stop procrastinating. Do it today. It's easy to be distracted. But Jesus is coming back. So let us be ready when he does. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are Lord of all. We thank you for these, these parables in Matthew's gospel that teach us about end times. Forgive us when we have been distracted by trying to figure out dates and times and years and instead have um, focused on the wrong thing instead of being ready, of building your kingdom now, of doing what's right now, of, of going that little bit extra so that when you do return, we will have been waiting expectantly for you as we come to the end of this time in the Christian calendar, these last few weeks of November before the new year in Christ's calendar begins with Advent. Help us to look forward with expectation for our lives, for the lives of those we love, 
for this world that you love so much. Help us work for you expectantly until you return in glory. And we'll give you all the honor and all the praise now and forever.